Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Titus, uh, the short letter to Pastor Titus in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2 is where we are today as we're looking at a call to be faithful. Uh, be faithful as the family of faith is what we're talking about this morning. Here's the key concept while you find Titus 2. We teach what we know, but we reproduce what we are. Titus needs to understand that as now he's going to have a responsibility to teach and to guide the churches on the island of Crete. In chapter 1, we noticed last week that Titus was called to raise up elders and leaders to organize the church, to kind of move against false teachers with heretical teaching that have been operating on the island of Crete. And now as we move into chapter 2, we move away from a concentration on the falsehoods he needs to work against to a concentration on the true responsibilities that Pastor Titus have. In fact, he's, he's gonna, Paul's going to show Titus the responsibility both of the pastor and of the people of the congregation in the church. But he starts with the responsibility of the pastor. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, You, Titus, must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. As I mentioned, false teachers have been uh, operating on the island of Crete. He's mobilized elders not only to rebuke these false teachers, but to replace them with true teaching. And the call is for Pastor Titus to teach what is in accord with sound, meaning correct doctrine. Doctrine are the essential truths of our faith. That means Pastor Titus needs to know what the essential truths of the faith are. What is sound doctrine? You see, not all things that people call doctrine is sound. Some doctrine strays from the Word of God. Sound doctrine teaches those things which spring from the Word of God, rightly interpreted. Sound doctrine always appeals to and is based on what we read in the Bible. It's not a man-made teaching. It's not a faddish kind of teaching. It is eternal in its truth. We need sound doctrine because we are easily confused and led astray. I saw a cartoon once, and in the cartoon, a woman was pictured going into her, the, the study of her pastor, and, and she was talking to the pastor. Like The caption under the cartoon was her words, and this is what she was saying. She was saying, Pastor, my horoscope says that this week would be a good week for you to preach on false doctrine. We are easily confused. Sound doctrine guides the church. Sound doctrine guards the church. We must know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. And for this reason here at Quail Lakes, we make it easy for you to discover the, the doctrinal positions, the theological beliefs that undergird our ministry here at Quail. We have a doctrinal statement that's available to you on the website. You can go there. We have a doctrinal statement printed available to you in the foyer every week. But this week, I made extra copies, and they're out in the foyer for you to pick, pick, pick them up and to read our doctrinal statement. We want you to read that and understand that. Not only do we make it available to you, we try to make it available in a, an easy-to-understand format. And I point out those two things because I want to warn you about two types of concerns I have as I observe the landscape of Christian organizations and ministries today. 
I want you to be careful about a Christian organization or ministry that does not make it easy for you to discover and that does not discuss their doctrinal positions. It may be that the leadership of that particular ministry feels somehow that talking about doctrine and theological beliefs is old-fashioned. It may be that they want to appear hip and modern, and if that's the case, they're just simply being naive because good doctrine never goes out of style. But it might be that those doctrines are fringe or worse, even heretical or not well thought out. Be careful if they don't make it easy for you to discover their doctrines. A few years ago, we were approached by a mission organization for support of one of their missionary staff. Pastor Grant will remember this uh, situation. And uh, as we always do, we asked that organization to send us a copy of their doctrinal position so that we can see whether or not we are aligned in what we would be preaching and teaching. And uh, when we did that, it, it seemed to kind of create a hiccup in the process. And they sent us eventually a one-word doctrinal statement. He said, our doctrine is Jesus. Well, that's cute. That's catchy. It's memorable. I still remember it today. It's a little snarky, but it's also misleading, possibly. Also not helpful. Not at all the spirit in which we were asking the question. And that organization did not get our money. Beware of an organization that doesn't come, is not forthcoming about their doctrine. Beware of an organization that expresses their doctrine, number two, in a way that is so cumbersome and so, you know, convoluted that it actually serves to leave you more confused after you read it than before you read it. You see, people are hesitant to ask questions. People are embarrassed sometimes. And so you can hide error behind a smokescreen of, of fancy language. So I invite you today, pick up a copy of that doctrinal statement in the foyer. We've made plenty. And if you read through that statement, and, and you might encounter some things that you're not quite sure what it says. These are concepts and words that we don't use on every single day. But if you do find something that you're a little bit confused about, I want you to email me your question. And you email me, and in the, the, the classic words of Ricky Ricardo, I'll splain you. Because <laughs> we want you to be splained. We want you to get what we're saying here in terms of our beliefs and what undergirds us. Right? Why? Because right thinking about doctrine is the stable foundation for right living in the Christian life. And that's actually what Paul is getting at as he writes to Timothy. Because notice in verse 1, he doesn't say teach sound doctrine. He says teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. And what he means by that is he means the kind of lifestyle that springs from sound doctrine. He expects that Titus will teach and preach sound doctrine, but he also says there's more to, to this than just a head knowledge. You have to be able to translate that belief into the way you live that gives glory to God. So he goes on to illustrate what he means, and he illustrates it by giving specific lifestyle issues at specific segments inside the church family that Titus needs to care about and demonstrate that he's teaching. So there are behaviors that spring from sound doctrine. I'll put it this way. Godly living is good doctrine in action. 
Godly living is good doctrine in action. If our lifestyle fails to reflect the character of God that is embedded in our good doctrine, not only do we neutralize our testimony, but also we demonstrate that we don't really understand the doctrine that we say we believe. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And faithfulness for the pastor is teaching this truth. And so Paul outlines what that's going to look like for the various groups. And the first two groups, Paul cares that Titus instructs faithfully, is older men and older women. Pick up the reading in verse 2. Teach older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. The first category is, what does it mean to be a faithful older man? I read recently that a man's life can be uh, quantified in four stages. First, when you believe in Santa Claus. Second, when you don't believe in Santa Claus. Third, when you are Santa Claus. Fourth, when you look like Santa Claus. (laughs) I'll leave it to your imagination which stage Paul is talking about when he says older men. But I want you to see that age in the Bible is consistently associated with blessing. It's consistently associated with wisdom. Age is celebrated. And so he says, older men, you need to, you need to teach them these certain things. And, and uh, maybe some of us are getting to the look like Santa Claus stage. I get that. I recognize in myself there are things I simply am not going to do any more than I used to do because now when I do them, the next day I wake up with aches and pains that I don't want. But it only means that now I need to grow in my spiritual vitality. So, so older men, your spiritual health, your spiritual maturity needs to shine out. And, and here's what faithfulness looks like, that spiritual maturity. I'll use the words that the NIV uses for the translation. It means first temperate, which means free from excess, free from addiction. It means, wor- he says, worthy of respect. It means dignified. He means, he goes on to say, an older man should be self-controlled. The Greek there has a sense of being thoughtful and careful as we approach life. In other words, having good judgment. The older man needs to be sound in faith, sound in love, in endurance, beyond the long-haul, long-term walk of faith that demonstrates maturity in Christ. That's faithfulness for an older man. Teach that, Pastor Timothy. Oh, excuse me, Pastor Titus. And then there's faithfulness for the older woman. In verse 3, he begins that. And he starts with the word likewise. And and I want you to catch that because you'll see that again and again throughout the passage. And what he means is you bring forward the qualities that are applicable from the last description. It's not as if, you see, older men need to be self-controlled, but older women don't need to be self-controlled. No, you bring forward the things that still apply, but there are some additional things that Paul wants to zero in on with the other category. So for older women, he adds reverence, which is respect for what is holy. He warns against a couple of behaviors. He warns against slander and gossip, and he warns against indulgence in alcohol. Often these things go together. A little too much wine and the conversation turns ugly and hurtful. 
Older women are to keep their reputation pure. Why? Because as you get to verse 4, we see they have a responsibility to train younger married women as well, to teach them so that the gospel is not going to get a bad reputation. In verse 5, it says, so that no one will malign the Word of God. The positive example of the older woman is a platform from which they teach younger married women with their words and with their example. And then there's some things for the younger married women to be concerned about. Verse 4, then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. Verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the Word of God. These are the concerns for the younger women. The younger woman is to be self-controlled. The younger woman, this is now we're talking about married women, but it applies across the board. The younger woman is to be pure. In other words, there's no room for flirty behavior. There's no room for risque dress and this kind of thing or risque behavior. That applies to us today just as much as in the first century. In fact, I would say this to the, 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 the women here today. If you want to kind of get an idea of what he's saying here, you very briefly turn on the show The Real Housewives of Whatever. Watch it for about five minutes and do exactly the opposite. Because that's what he's saying. There's no room for that kind of stuff. There's no room for that kind of dress, that kind of language, and that kind of behavior. And, of course, it goes both ways for married men as well. A careless glance, a careless word, a careless activity can cause a lifetime of pain. Purity. Purity prior to marriage and absolute fidelity and faithfulness within marriage. That's the standard, and, and that's the standard for both. He then, then he goes on for the young married woman, be busy at home and kind. As a matter of fact, that sentence actually kind of goes together. It's really, kind, it's really saying, carry out your home duties with kindness, not resentfulness. See, married life is for the long haul. It's not as easy as saying, I do, and hoping for the best. One older woman seeking to live this out, uh, building into the lives of the younger women around her said this, uh, the day you say, I do, you choose your love. And every day after that, you learn to love your choice. And lastly, he he says for the younger woman, be subject to their husband. That's verse 5. Now, actually, the the sentence there literally says this, subjecting themselves to their husband. See, this is not an outside thing being applied onto the, the young married woman. This is a choice that that young married woman is making to, to be in subjection to their husband, submitting to the husband. Why? Because it demonstrates the greater submission to God. That's what's happening here. Now, he's here speaking pointedly to younger married women. But in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the same concept, but he blows it up for the entire kind of uh, a discussion of the family. In Ephesians 5.21, we see that submission actually goes both ways. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you see the motive for submission? The motive for, more, for submission is because as I submit to my spouse, I am demonstrating that I have a greater submission, submission to God. And I am reminding myself and others around me that my marriage is a picture of my relationship with God. That we are the bride of Christ. So I submit to one another 
to demonstrate that I submit to Jesus. Now here in his letter to Titus on Crete, he's emphasizing this point for young married women. And it's to come from the older woman to to show them the way. And since this is the specific emphasis here, it may well be that on Crete at this time, they were having a problem with this. It may be that there's a situation going on that Paul is actually addressing because each of these letters, don't forget, is specific to the needs and the issues of the receiving church or people. And so maybe there was a struggle, maybe there was a rumor or a rumbling that this needed to be emphasized in these congregations. But then Paul moves on to faithfulness for younger men. Verse 6, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. All the other things that apply are moved forward, but the one he emphasizes for young men is self-control. And Titus, you yourself are to be the one to teach the young men self-controlled. No sowing wild oats. Now, we recognize that the first century had its share of male adolescent antics, just as we have our share of those things today. Remember the toad-licking fad of the 1990s? Or the detergent pod-eating fad of the early 2000s? It seems... There's always a tendency for weird and crazy stunts among young men. Titus, teach them self-control, Paul says. Now, an example of the need for that was brought to my attention. I I remembered it as I was was studying this passage, and it is uh, from my wife and her her experience teaching high school. Some years ago, uh, she told me about a student who had been absent for the entire week after Halloween. And a week is a long time to miss honors chemistry. A lot goes on there. And so when he came back, she asked him, you know, how are you doing? What was the problem? What happened? And let me pause to say this. If you recognize this story, maybe, it was in, maybe this person is you or your family. This story came to me with no names. I don't know who we're talking about here, so you don't need to feel uh, like I do. However, here's the story. This, man, this young boy had been violently ill Because when he was out trick-or-treating with his friends on Halloween, he decided, just for fun, to lick all the door handles of the homes that he went to. What? Licking the... This was not a dare. Nobody dared him to do it. There was no prize involved at all. But somehow he got it into his mind that this would be a cool thing to do. And that's what he did. And he was violently ill for the rest of the week. You know, okay, self-control is needed. But Titus is not only just to teach that, he's to be an example. Let's read on, verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Let them see the good qualities in you, Titus. Not only teach, but recognize you teach what you know, but you reproduce what you are. Build into the life of these young men faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And the combined effort of this is that the people who might choose to criticize us will not have an opportunity for accusations. And then he continues to the category of slaves. 
Faithfulness for believing slaves. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now, interestingly enough, the word master there is the Greek word from which we get our word despot. Uh, A despot is a person with total authority, complete control. That's the way a master in the Roman Empire related to their slaves. And Paul is saying, you know, Titus, you have slaves who are coming to know Christ as Savior. They're placing their faith in Jesus, and they need to be able to show their masters that Christians can be trusted. So teach them to live in such a way that Jesus is teaching. Jesus will be attractive to them. I say it this way. Live such a good life that Jesus looks good. Some critics, however, look at this passage and passages like this, and they say, well, this just proves that the Bible is old-fashioned. This just proves that the Bible is outmoded. It proves that even sometimes the Bible is immoral because it doesn't condemn slavery. But you know what? That's unfair. Because the historical reality is that by proclaiming biblical truth, that all people are created in the image of God, that all people, no matter what you look like or what language you speak, are loved by God, uh, proclaiming that truth over the ages, that the Bible exposes the, the evil nature of slavery over time, it was those truths that did away with slavery eradicated amongst civilized people through the Bible's influence, even though it was a lingering evil in our nation for far too long. But at this point in history, the Apostle Paul is not speaking in ways to transform the society of the Roman Empire. What he's really doing is he's speaking in ways to be used by the Spirit to transform people from the inside out. And so we can take what he says here and apply those same teachings to employment. In other words, in your workplace, you who have a boss, a manager, someone who's over you, hopefully he or she is not a despot, but still they're the boss. So no cutting corners, no stealing stuff from work, no cheating, no lying, no gossiping. Never forget who you represent when you go to work in the morning because you represent Jesus. And make Jesus look good in the way that you work. These specific categories all throughout the chapter. And then towards the end of the chapter, Pastor Titus is told uh, more in a summary fashion what he should teach all of the members of the church. Verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the circle widens. And when the circle widens, Paul says grace is primary. The lives we live will either promote grace or contradict grace. So which is it? Which is your life doing? Promoting grace or contradicting grace? And Paul in this entire chapter has a concern for each of the segments of the population of the church. Each of the segments of the population of the church has special needs, special emphasis, special concerns. And that fact has given rise to the kind of programming like we have here at Quail Lakes. Different programs for children, 
for youth, for men, for women, for families, for seniors, different aspects of ministry so that the unique needs and concerns for that particular segment can be met. But it all boils down to this. In every stage in life, no matter where you are, there must be evidence in the way that we live that we are disciples of Jesus and our life is rooted in good doctrine. That our righteousness is doctrine lived out. And in every stage, no matter who you are or where you are, there is spiritual growth to be found and spiritual work to be done. Because Paul reminds us, none of us has arrived. There's always more to learn and grow and do. None of us has arrived until Jesus arrives again. And he says, that's the blessed hope. That's the blessed hope. Jesus will arrive again. And when we see Him, we'll know Him to be King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's bow for prayer together. Thank You, Lord, that You challenge us all along the way. There's always aspects of life that we're meant to put in place, meant to learn. Thank You, Lord, that You grow us. And we look forward to the blessed hope. But in the meantime, in the waiting time, we pray that we live out good doctrine that people see in us the kinds of lives that make Jesus look good, make loving Jesus look natural and right and perfect just as it is. Help us do that, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.